listening to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. And I'm Kenny Stein. I'm the policy director at the Institute for Energy Research. Joining us today is Chet Thompson, the president and CEO of the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers. AFPM is a trade association that represents over 300 member companies that encompass virtually all U.S. refining and petrochemical manufacturing capacity. Prior to joining AFPM in 2015, Thompson was a partner at Crowell and Mooring LLP, where he was the chairman of the Environment and Natural Resources Group. And he previously served as deputy general counsel at the EPA during the George W. Bush administration. Chet, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you, uh, Alex and Kenny. Appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah, so we have a number of issues that we want to cover today. Uh, but I guess before we get into it, can you just give a big picture look at how the refining industry has been coping with the disruption and demand loss from the coronavirus pandemic? There's been a lot of coverage of the oil industry on the production side, but what about specific to refiners? Well, I would say, you know, there's certainly been a lot of disruption, as you know, up and down the value chain. Uh, lots of disruptions in the upstream sector, as has been widely reported, but there has been uh, an equal amount of disruption on the downstream sector. Uh, I speak with, you know, lots of folks within the industry, and uh, one thing is, one refrain has been consistent, and that is folks have never seen anything like this, ever. This is nothing else compared to what we've gone through, and and what seemed like a blink of an eye you know, we went from a situation we were humming along, utilization was, you know, north of 90%. Uh, the throughput was through our U.S. refining kit was north of 16 million barrels a day. And, and then uh, COVID hit. Uh, and now we're in a situation where we've had a, a couple of refineries shut down. Nationwide, our refining utilization is just south of 70%. Gasoline demand is at, at its peak was down more than 50%. Jet fuel was down about 70%, and even even diesel has has been down. So uh, it's been you know it's been pretty uh, pretty uh, devastating to to the industry over the over the last few weeks. Um, but the good news is, is it appears that uh, uh, the demand destruction that we've been dealing with uh, might have hit hit the floor. And according to data we've been receiving and uh, been released by EIA, you know we're starting to trend in the in the uh, in a better direction. It seems that gasoline demand is starting to uh, come back, uh, and with that, you know we'll start to see utilization creep up, and hopefully. This will soon be in our rearview mirror. Yeah. So with all with all that going on, we've sort of seen in the last month or two a lot of policy responses that people have been throwing out to try and deal with uh, some of the things. We like in addition to our demand problem, we've got uh, the supply side glut from the price war. People have been talking about mandatory production cuts, uh, tariffs, completely banning imports uh, from some countries. So. The, on the supply gut slide rather than just the demand side, how, how is that affecting refiners and sort of some of these proposals we've started, like how do they, could they, could they necessarily backfire in refiners or, you know, in maybe trying to help the producers, you might harm the refiners type thing. Well, there, yeah, a lot in those questions. Uh, <laughs> yeah. let, me, let me start off by saying there certainly 
has been uh, a number of, of events that have converged into this, this situation. And so, you know, prior to COVID, you know, the worldwide uh, uh, oil demand was about a, a hundred million barrels of day, uh, uh, you know, per day. You know, that has dropped about 30 million barrels. And, you know, from our estimates, you know, 27 million barrels of that has been the, you know, been largely been the demand destruction part of the imbalance. And then there's, you know, a three to four million barrels per day imbalance, part of the imbalance caused by the oversupply between the Saudi and, you know, Russia uh, price war, if you will. And I give you those numbers to point out that, look, they both have been contributing to the problem, but overwhelmingly, this is a demand destruction problem. And, you know, what we've been trying to communicate is certainly we support efforts to try to find the right global balance between su supply and demand. And we've applauded the administration's effort to, you know, to, to, to lead a diplomatic effort to find some solutions. And, you know, we certainly are, are, are glad that, you know, the OPEC plus deal, you know, found, you know, was reached. Uh, through the leadership of this administration. That's good, certainly. But again, the, not, nothing's going to get better until we get demand returned in this country. And so overwhelmingly that this is a demand problem. Now, what we've, our position with the administration has been, please do not make a bad situation worse. Right. <laughs> and we think that, you know, the market has, you know, an efficient way to, to handle these things. It may not be pleasant, but if we're free marketers on the way up, we should be free marketers during difficult times. And that's what AFTM and our members are. And so, you know, when you talked, uh, you mentioned the, uh, some proposals to, you know, limit foreign crude, specifically Saudi crude from entering the United States. We certainly were and continue to be opposed to those type of policy responses. Uh, we do not believe they will help the upstream. And, you know, we live in a world where, you know, uh, crude is a global commodity and the U.S. refining kit, the most efficient in the world, you know, we play in a global stage. And so, you know, our guys need access to uh, all kinds of crude, including Saudi crude. And, you know, the crude that has been, uh, that's on the water heading this way. The, the, this, these are transactions that occurred months and months ago. And, you know, they are largely for parts of our refining kit that is configured to run on medium to heavy sour crudes. And so, you know, eliminating the ability for, you know, our refineries to get these crudes would only hurt U.S. refiners uh, because it's not like these uh, refineries that are taking Saudi crude are not going to, this crude is not displacing uh, light, sweet domestic crude. We've got in the background the, the what the hopefully temporary stuff we're talking about, the supply gut and the demand destructions. Uh, but we, then that also raises uh, the perennial issue of the renewable fuel standard, uh, ah. which, yeah, which, you know, it mandates the blending of increasing volumes of ethanol into the nation's fuel supply, regardless of consumer demand. Uh, but in the last uh, few weeks, month or so, we've seen a couple state governors who've asked for a waiver of the 2020 volumes uh, in response to the demand crisis. And so just could you tell us a little bit about the 2020 volume mandates, uh, what the governors are requesting, and then sort of how the RFS compliance costs are 
intermixing with the demand issues that we're seeing right now? Sure. Look, let me start off by by saying uh, the renewable fuel standard uh, is bad public policy, even in the best of times. And so it certainly uh, should, should come as no surprise that we think it's even a worse policy in these difficult times, to be sure. Uh, there is you know, tremendous pressure on the U.S. refining kit at, at the moment. You know, I like to tell people, you know, there's only one uh, commodity that I'm aware of right now that has not, dr- you know, dropped precipitously in the last couple of weeks, and that's the D6 Grin price, uh, which is actually up over 100% since the start of, of the year. Wow. And so to, you know, to have the U.S. refiners that are struggling to survive these difficult times, you know, continue to have to stare down, you know, high compliance costs that, uh, that you know, that result from the RFS is, you know, is, you know, it's, it, it, would, it would be laughable if it wasn't so serious, right? And so, uh, and this, this is happening at the same time, there's lots of questions surrounding whether small refineries uh, will be continue to uh, to be able to be eligible for small refinery uh, relief, and so you know we we certainly support what the you know the governors of, of the handful of these states uh, are seeking, which is in light of the severe economic harm uh, that their states are facing, the severe economic harm that U.S. refiners are facing, that it, it certainly we support their request that EPA suspend the RFS, at least for, for the balance uh, of this year. Yeah. And you, you mentioned briefly the, the small refinery uh, waivers question. Just want to uh, pull that out because we've seen some court activity in, uh, in the Tenth Circuit that is sort of called into question the status of those small refinery waivers. And that's just that's for the past couple of years, that's kind of been the main pressure release that the administration's tried to use to relieve some of the burdens of the RFS. So if if they sort of the administration sort of lets that go away, uh, do you see any other way for helping with RFS compliance for the industry? Or is this, you know, does that mean Congress has to do something? What do what do you I guess what do you see uh, if if those small refinery waivers are allowed to go away? Uh, what sort of consequences you see there? Yeah, well, let me start off, if you don't mind, kind of at the beginning, just, uh, you know, we think that uh, the 10th Circuit got it wrong, for your listeners who may not be, you know, steeped in this. I mean, the, the 10th Circuit uh, looked at the Clean Air Act, specifically the RFS waiver, uh, small refinery waiver program, and and in it, it says that uh, EPA can grant an extension of the exemption. The small refiners were exempt for, over the first couple of years of the program. And from that little bit of language, and despite the fact that no other major stakeholder has ever really interpreted it this way, this, this court held that uh, in order to get the exemption, you needed to have gotten the exemption every year. So because that's the only way to make sense of the fact you need to you know, have an extension of the exemption. So the argument was if there was a year in which a particular refinery didn't have a waiver, there was nothing to extend. Okay, we, we certainly uh, don't believe that that's the best reading of the provision. We think it, it was just, uh, frankly, everyday parlance about saying how you're able to continue to grant 
uh, small refinery waivers after the blanket you know, program uh, terminated. And EPA's always interpreted that way as, as well uh, as industry. And you know, these small refinery waivers have been a, uh, you know, a life raft, if you will, to the small refineries uh, of our country, which are critical assets, who, you know, uh, RFS compliance is second only to, the, to crude oil uh, expenditures that these small refineries make. This program was never in, in intended or meant to impose such a burden. And so EPA was granting waivers. Uh, by the way, EIA data shows you know, conclusively that granting these waivers has had no impact on the ethanol industry. In fact, over the last couple of years, you know, ethanol consumption uh, and production have been at all time highs. But so nevertheless, the, uh, the 10th Circuit uh, rendered its opinion uh, that, that, that opinion uh, now is, is under appeal. Uh, it's, you know, it was, appeal was sought to the full 10th Circuit that was denied. And uh, now parties have until September to seek uh, appeals to the Supreme Court. And you know, we're pretty confident that companies are gonna avail themselves of that opportunity. Now, we were disappointed that uh, EPA did not seek a review of the decision to the 10th Circuit although they tell us that they're still open to seeking relief from the Supreme Court. Um, hmm. But, you know, we'll believe them when they do it, frankly. But, you know, so again, we're disappointed. Uh, this is, you know, perfect example of why EPA should not be uh, ridding itself of legitimate ways to provide relief, uh, because if there was ever a time that small refineries need relief, it would be right now. Now, if, if in fact EPA were to uh, stop issuing uh, small refinery exemptions, or at least to uh, follow, you know, strictly the, what the 10th Circuit said, it's our understanding that would only leave like a handful of refineries that uh, would remain eligible for the program. You know, e EPA would have to look for other uh, relief mechanisms through their existing cellulosic uh, waiver as well as their general waiver for economic harm. Uh, but again, certainly it, it, it needlessly makes things uh, more difficult, which we believe it makes it even more uh, high time for, for Congress to step in. We thought that Congress has needed to step in for years, uh, but we think if this goes away, then really Congress is gonna have no choice to step in if they want to continue to protect these critical small refinery assets that, that again, are just so, so important to, to our country. Yeah, the, the statistic that always amazes me is that a lot of these are, a lot of these small refineries are spending more money on RFS compliance than they are on their own payroll. And it's just, it's amazing to think about that government costs are more than, you know, actual employment. So. Oh, that's right. You know, what, you know, look, I, I was at, at uh, EPA around the time that, you know, the RFS was passed by Congress and became law. Uh, and at the time, you know, the thought of ring costs were supposed to be, you know, pennies. It was supposed to just be, a, you know, again, a transactional cost. No, no one at the time envisioned that it would, uh, you know, that prices for RINs would be, you know, as high as, as high as they are. Like I said, uh, just a few weeks ago, rent prices were north of 30 cents a gallon, which was, you know, more than, uh, than a barrel uh, of, of crude was selling for. So, 
it, it should put into perspective just how out of control the compliance costs of this program have gotten. Yep. So uh, looking forward, still on the RFS, we've got we got a couple uh, big deadlines popping up here. The the reset process uh, because the RFS keeps missing its mandated uh, volumes. So EPA has got to reset the volumes. And then coming up in 2022 is the last year that Congress actually mandated specific volumes. And then after that, it's basically at the discretion of the EPA. So just from a refiner's perspective, this, this sort of uncertainty in the next couple of years with the RFS, what, is, what does that mean for refiners and what, how do you guys look at that? You know, you, you uh, put your finger on it's uncertainty and uncertainty uh, is always bad. Uh, it's hard to, to plan uh, going forward. Um, it's hard, you know, to understand or anticipate what EPA is going to do uh, without the, you know, small refinery exemptions, right? And now, like you say, we, we're coming up upon the time that EPA is already past due and looking at reset. Uh, they have indeed um, triggered reset across all of, of the various categories. And so, you know, that, that does present an opportunity for EPA to uh, set the volumes to a more realistic level. Uh, but then also looming out there is what you referred to as set, which happens, you know, following the 2022 timeframe when at that point there is no more statutory mandated volumes and EPA is supposed to use six factors to come up with the actual volumes. You know, we think frankly there is uh, uncertainty and risks with all stakeholders in that process. I'm not aware of too many people that are thrilled with the idea that EPA uh, alone gets to set these volumes. Uh, but, you know, because there, again, there's risk for, for, for all involved here uh, going forward. Uh, we like to think that EPA would use this process to, again, level set uh, the volume requirements to realize that some of the original bases for the RFS, <clears throat> uh, if they were ever true, certainly are now. As a country, we're more energy independent than we've uh, ever been, I could argue. Uh, there's certainly been lots of questions about the environmental benefits of the program, but there's no question that, you know, that this program is, you know, has carries with it high compliance costs and uh, lots of other flaws that, that uh, that have created, you know, headaches for all involved. And so, you know, what we're hoping happens out of this is that either, you know, that particularly the set process will, will lead people back to the uh, legislative negotiating table uh, to find a path forward that's better for everybody. And, and we at AFTM over the last couple of years, we've tabled a number of ideas that we believe would work for better for all stakeholders, not just refiners, but the ethanol industry, uh, by the way, you know, my members, AFPM's members, you know, you know, we're not anti-ethanol by any stretch. In fact, our members produce, you know, more than 20% of the ethanol produced in this country today, but we're, we're anti-bad programs for sure. And so one of the ideas that we've gotten behind is at the very least converting the RFS from a volume to a percentage standpoint uh, to, so there are bills out there that would reduce the RFS to, uh, you know, a mandate that's closer to a percentage mandate of 9.7 percent, 
which would be consistent to what most gasoline is today, E10. And then the other proposal, uh, Alex, we've thrown out that we're, you know, we think is would be far better for the entire uh, liquid transportation uh, supply chain is is what we call a 95 RON fuel standard, which would basically raise the octane level requirements of fuels, uh, which would open the door for more ethanol and would simultaneously, you know, make the transportation fleet more efficient. So that's a long-winded answer, and I apologize for that, but, I, but I'll tell you that, you know, we, we are concerned about set and reset, but we also think it, it, it affords some opportunities uh, for all stakeholders to actually find a path forward that, that can work far better for everybody. Yeah, you definitely got into it, the sort of the last wrap-up that I was looking for, but just with the, with oil demand being flat for years now, and then with domestic production, you know, we don't we have more crude than we know what to do with, it's sort of calls into question, I think the way you described it, calls into question the ongoing need for the RFS. Those original basis 15 years ago just doesn't yeah. really exist anymore. No, I mean, that's right. And, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, some people, when they hear us say that, suggest that means that we're, you know, we're anti-ethanol uh, or, or better yet, anti-biofuels, and we're not. But, you know, it's been, it's been 15 years now, uh, particularly as it relates to the ethanol industry and the biodiesel industry, these are our mature industries uh, that do not need government mandates anymore. We, we believe you could take away the RFS tomorrow and you would still have you know, E10 being a dominant fuel, which means ethanol demand will continue to be high and ethanol exports, you know, once we get past COVID are, are likely uh, to rise again. And so, but to force more biofuel into the transportation sector than, than the sector can handle, uh, you know, there, there's no good that comes out of that. I think we're getting pretty close to our time here. Um, just before we go, is there anything that we haven't discussed here that you want to share with our listeners? And then where can people go to learn more about AFPM? Well, again, I mean, I would say since we started, you know, with COVID, let me just end there on a more positive note. And that is the U.S. refining kit is the most efficient and effective in the world. Uh, we're certainly facing some challenges now, but we are very well, you know, equipped and positioned to come back strong, you know, as we're starting to see the country reopen now. And, you know, this is, you know, normally when things are so bad, we would be wringing our hands and trying to figure out what was fundamentally wrong, you know, with our industry. And that's not the case here. You know, when, when demand starts to come back, we're going to be there. We, again, there, there is, you know, we're the, the most efficient refiners that you can find on the planet, and we're gonna, we're gonna be there to make the products that the, the our economy needs to thrive and that people need to thrive uh, today. And so, uh, you know, we, this too shall pass, and and we'll be back for sure. I think the note of optimism is a great place to end on there. So uh, our guest today has been Chet Thompson from AFPM. Chet, thanks for taking the time to talk. Alex Kenny, thank you guys so much. Be safe. <laughs>